It's all right. All right, we're live. Thank you for coming back and seeing us again. So let me scroll all the way up because that happened. So hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. Uh, while we said three, unfortunately, it's just going to be us today because uh, Nick Garber is out saving the world from E.T. and such, as you do for uh, Border Patrol. And uh, we'll be rocking his feet again. This is true. He didn't trip over two feet today. Elvis doesn't like it either. All right. So, uh, Davis, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself to the viewers and listeners? Hi, I'm Davis Ashura. I write books for fun on the side, uh, but I'm not doing my real job. And so far, I've written 10 books. Uh, they're um, epic fantasy for the most part. And uh, a lot of my Indian heritage is at least what I understand of my Indian heritage, uh, has influenced my writing. And um, it's been fun, and uh, the reception has been cool. So uh, I've enjoyed it. And, and if I didn't, I probably would have quit because it takes a lot of time to do it. And yeah, that was how uh, Seska sold me on getting one of your books when they had it on a special for Audible. She's like, you have to buy this or else because it's not just boring European fantasy over and over again. Yeah, I think the or else was there though. No, no, no. Or else was I will send you the money. Just go buy the book. So Nick and I heard the or else. I don't know what you heard, but we heard the or else. <laughs> so the next, the next part of the introduction, dear listener and viewers, is uh, how we first found them. So I actually found Davis uh, when I was looking for authors to do interviews on my blog when I first started writing back in 2016. Man, it's been a while. And uh, he was kind enough to actually answer, which I didn't get a lot of those. So, uh, And then I've sort of always been meaning to get around to his books. And now that she made me, I've started listening to <laughs> I have good taste. So, um, I actually met Davis through Dragon Con and running the fantasy literature department there. And he... I blindly put him on a couple of panels not really knowing your work and i was you did a fabulous job and we got to talking afterwards and between panels and you're a great person and an amazing writer so well thank you appreciate that i i'll take the uh i'll take both of those compliments i'm not sure i earned them but i'll take them anyway <laughs> well you've been i've i've enjoyed it every time i've read one of your books so now we get on to religion, and I think I might be able to guess these, but I want to know for sure. So, Star Trek, Star Wars, or Firefly? Well, you can see the um, serenity right there. So, yeah. Firefly. I mean, I've got a little Starfleet thing on the other side, but right next to it is another serenity. And I've got Malcolm Reynolds' gun on my fireplace mantle. Nice. Um, oh, the damn cat must have kicked it off. I had a serenity on the mantle also but uh yeah it's definitely firefly <laughs> and then who needs Chekhov's gun when you've got mal's gun what i said who needs Chekhov's gun when you have mal's what? gun exactly so we have now it's game of thrones lord of the rings or harry potter lord of the rings i figured <laughs> that was an easy one because you know I'm, I'm older than a lot of people, and so um, you go with what uh, what formed you as a as a young person and as a kid, and that was definitely Lord of the Rings. So I imagine if I was thirty or something, my choice might be Harry Potter um, mm -hmm. or or Game of Thrones. I'm not sure which one, but it's Lord, Lord of the Rings. I can understand that. So. Because we love both the science fiction and the fantasy, but which one was your first love that you came to? Science fiction, for sure. Uh, well, maybe fantasy. So it's a funny story. Well, it's funny to me. But um, when I was when I came here to the country, I, I wasn't born in America. I was born in India. And so I came here when I was three and a half. And it took me a couple of years, actually, to actually know what city I lived in because I didn't speak the language. And... Uh, it's kind of dramatic moving over here. But anyway, one of the things that struck me was there's this boy in a school bus and nobody ever bothered him. 
and he was always reading a Hardy Boys mystery. And so I don't know if Hardy Boys counts as sci-fi or fantasy. I know it's mystery, but Frank and Joe solved like 200 mysteries between Frank's junior and senior year and Joe's sophomore and junior year. I mean, I don't know when their summer vacation ended, but there must have been some sort of... <laughs> there had to be some sort of fantasy to do that many mysteries. Exactly. So maybe it's it's a combination of science fiction and fantasy. But um, the books that I remember reading first were, were uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Mm-hmm. Later on, it was The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings. That's awesome. So would you say that's your first memory of kind of engaging in science fiction and fantasy as a genre? Yeah, I, I'd say so. So I I read uh, The Hardy Boys, you know, because they're science fiction and fantasy. And, um, and they're definitely fantasy because Frank and Joe had their own cars and they got to drive their, their dad's boat to sleep. And I still remember all those things. So what kid wouldn't want that? But um, I read a bunch of uh, Greek and Norse mysteries. Mm-hmm. And somehow from that, I stumbled upon a book called Dolphin Island by Arthur C. Clarke. Okay. And then uh, the next book I read was um, The City and the Stars. And... From there, it was just, I took off, and I read everything I could that was science fiction. Um, yes, it's, that's awesome. Yes, JR, your, your question is next. All right, so how did your love of science fiction and fantasy genres transitioning into you writing the fantasy novels that you're known and loved for? Um, so eventually, I, I sort of, you know, I've always loved science fiction. I still love it, but my, my science fiction is rockets and space exploration. It's not, you know, a phone that happens to let you surf the internet and, and have social media stuff. That's not my sci-fi. So I'm still waiting for my sci-fi to really show up. Uh, but um, that's what I always loved. But somehow I started reading Lord of the Rings, and um, and then I read everything I read. You know, the Shannara series, I read um, Thomas Covenant, uh, I, re- I read uh, Lord, uh, Wheel of Time, and those kind of just sunk into me. And uh, when you read a lot, I think you kind of want to be a writer also. And so I could have written sci-fi, I guess, but I eventually <laughs> fell in love with uh, with fantasy more than sci-fi, and that's what I wanted to write was those kind of stories. Fair enough. So um, many authors let their own sort of real-life experiences influence the stories they tell. So is there any specific formidable moment for you that shapes you as a storyteller? Yeah, uh, I'd say so. I, I wanted to write – I wanted to read books – with, uh, with people that look like me, first of all. And so there weren't a lot when I first started publishing. There are a lot more now, a lot more fantasy novels set outside Western Europe. Most of them are young adult, which isn't really a fair characterization set for young adult. That's just how they market it. I think they're just as adult as anything else. Um, but they, they weren't around when I was when I was getting ready to publish. And I wanted to read those kind of stories about my culture uh, as I know it. And I keep saying as I know it because I'm from India, but I was raised in America. So I have a different perspective on on my Indian heritage than somebody who is from India and uh, raised in India. They'd have a very different perspective of it than I would. So um, I don't want to make it seem like that's exactly what I do. Um, but... In terms of lightning bolts, um, I'd say when I read David Edding's book, that's when I really know, knew I wanted to be a writer, but I was you know, 14 or 15 and then other things got in the way before I could really uh, put my fingers on the keyboard and start writing. And then um, you know, when I moved to North Carolina in 2003, uh, the job I, that I still had it was kind of slow the first six months, and, uh, and so I wrote a terrible book. Uh, and the bug just got me there at that point, and then you know, I had to set it aside. But eventually I got back to it in 2008, and there we are. So, 
transitioning a bit away from writing, but what, have you had any really cool fan art or um, cosplays of any of your characters yet? I have not had fan art or cosplay, but I'll take the two pets that were named after my characters over the family of cosplay. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, that's a beautiful German Shepherd mix uh, named after Rook. And then uh, a cat named Aya. He's a, I have a cat named Aya in one of the stories. And so I'll take those two any day of the week. One second. Um, so, did you have you had anybody ask for your autograph out in public yet? Yes, and it was kind of funny because uh, it was at the first Dragon Con. And um, if anyone's ever been to Dragon Con, it's like all of your nerd heroes are there, at least as far as authors are concerned. When they're just walking around, I mean, it's it was kind of surreal to me to just be, you know, rubbing shoulders with. Naomi Novik, and then uh, in this particular thing, though, I saw this this gentleman with a cane walking by, and he had a Manticorn Star uniform uh, on, and I thought, is that David Weber? And um, and it was, and so I, I must have bet David Weber's ear for about thirty minutes, and you know he was just sitting there, he was kind as could be, just talking to me, and. Um, there's a, another person standing behind me, and, and I, I thought, you know, oh, gosh, I'm hogging David Weber's time. And so I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll get out of your way now. So I got out of David Weber's hair, and the other person talked to David Weber for about you know, 30 seconds. Then he circled back to the and told me where his T-shirt or the sweatshirt. He said, did you take this to show And I said, yes. And he said, oh, I'm your boss. Such a big fan. I listen to his truck driver. I listen to him all the time on the road. So that was just such a thrill that he wasn't waiting for David Weber. He was waiting for me. So that was really cool. That is awesome. So I had a spare book. He didn't have a book in mind in his pocket because he listens to audio books, right? Mm -hmm. I had one, so I gave it to him. Science That's awesome. Yeah, your audiobooks are really well done, but I'm, I'm biased, and Nick Fidel's one of my favorite narrators. So. Nick is pretty wonderful, so uh, we're all biased for Nick. So, did, you get, did you get to pick him as the narrator, or is that what your publisher gave you? Odd story. I, I begged Nick. I, I don't know if I begged Nick is the right word, but um, I just had my... So I, I, I'm indie publisher my ebooks, and... Um, Somebody convinced me to maybe give audiobooks a try. And I didn't bother asking whether Audible Studios or Podium or Sorry about the echo, by the way. So I emailed him and I asked him, Would you like to narrate my book? It's as simple as that. I just emailed him. And Nick said, Sure, this is how much it costs. And I said, Well, there it is the profits from my second in the ebook market, so I hired Nick to do it. And then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got a little visitor. I hired Nick to do the first one. The book did Then I hired him to do the second one. Then, since that time, I've had publishers publish my audiobooks for me. And I've always asked that Nick be the narrator because. Well, he he does the pronunciations really well, and he does, and it's also very consistent. Yeah, and the, the best part of publishing for me is the hour long conversation I get to have with Nick, which I didn't realize it was so unique. But a lot of my friends, you know, who have done really well, even who have Nick as their narrator. All they do is send a spreadsheet with pronunciation, you know, guides on it, and that's it. That's their interaction with Nick. Whereas Nick texts me and says, "Do you have a minute uh, to go over all the pronunciations? When when can we talk?" And so I get to spend an hour with Nick Fidel with each of my books, going over pronunciations and characters and and motivations and stuff like that. So. Nobody, uh, I haven't heard of anybody else who gets to do that, so I'm kind of special that way, I guess. Okay. 
So do you actually have pronunciations in mind when you're writing? Because I tend to never, like, I, I, I'm i an open book. If they want to pronounce, other than the certain words like corman or, or adjutant or whatever, like words that are, you know, topical, like as far as names and stuff, I, I'm, I'm like, sure, if that's how you think it sounds. I don't have um, characters' voices you know, strongly in my head when I'm writing. Uh, I know how the words are pronounced. And then when Nick gets a hold of me, then I'm forced to really consider how they're talking. And so I didn't want the dwarves in my... So the current series that I'm working on is a, my love letter to uh, Real of Time and Lord of the Rings. So there's a lot of influences from those two that series in my book, including dwarves and elves of the Tolkien sort. But I didn't want my dwarves to sound like you know, Scots. So <laughs> they don't, I hope. No, I think that they really do. I like your dwarves. They're they fit they fit some of the stereotypes, but they're different enough that they are unique to you. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So, I love those stereotypes so that people could lock lock onto them. But man, do you really want another Gimli? I mean, Gimli's great, but I don't think you need another Tolkien as dwarf and Tolkien as elves. Only one take on it, so. Uh, but when I was talking to Nick, I had to think, what do these dwarves talk? And Nick was getting a little bit bored with me. He's like, does every character have to have a Midwestern American accent? Can't we do something else? And I said, well, what do you have in mind? Can you do accents? And he just went to Nick, you do great accents. And so... Uh, I heard that and I said, can you do Texas? <laughs> you can do Texas also. And so that's how some of those accents came about is because Nick was getting bored with me, you know, saying, well, he's got a deep voice. She's got a lot of, you know, contralto, a commanding voice. Do they all sound the same in terms of their accent? Do they? Can't we do something fun with them? So that's kind of how it came about. <laughs> We had another author on Robert Ross who works with Nick Padell also. And um, he said that one of his favorite things is to try and find something that really breaks Nick. <laughs> I was, I was in the dragon, the virtual dragon con, um, I guess in 2020 with, uh, with Robert and Nick, we had a, we had a con together or a, a panel together. I mean. Yeah, it was a fun panel. Um, but yeah, it, Poor Nick. Then, so I was going to ask what the funniest story of in fan no, interaction. You were going to ask him about uh, the. Uh, let me pull up the number for you. We're on number 14. 14. 14. Have, have you ever spotted your books in the wild? Oh, I wish. I mean, I guess a dragon con, you kind of do. Didn't you tell me you spotted one of them at your local uh, bean shop? Coffee well, I shop. Gave, I gave them that. I mean, it wasn't that it was spontaneous. I said, can you guys you know, stop this and sell this? And I said, sure, why not? You're a local author and you're always here writing and drinking our coffee. So you put that in place. Um, I've, I've been recognized at Dragon Con. Um, and... I don't think anybody had my book, but they did um, talk my ear off about the book, so that was pretty cool. I think they really talked my ear off, but when you're when you don't expect anyone to notice you and somebody does, it feels like somebody noticed me. They just see my little name tag and like, I read your book, and that that's just pretty cool. I am sure that's a wonderful feeling. I really am. Um, I'm not sure how to. Do you have any? Funny story oh, that could top the David. The fan was waiting for you over David. Hmm? JR, did you say something? No, I was about to ask for you because you froze for a second. Oh, sorry. So you're asking if there's any funny stories that could top the waiting for David Weber, but actually waiting for me. Mm -hmm. I love that story. <laughs> that's, that's my absolute favorite. I, I, I mean, this was a 2018 con and, um, and so, you know, David Walker's been a legend for 25 years. And so to have that, you know, on my resume as a list of cool stories that I can tell people, I just love that story. It's just, it's fantastic. 
I don't have anything. All right. Well, sometimes you can't beat perfection, so we'll move on. So this is the this is the part of the interview where we ask you to tell us uh, the highlights reel of what you've written. I mean, you could just tell us the various series that you've written. So I've written uh, the first series I wrote was called The Castle of It's a three book fantasy, and then I wrote. It started out as an urban fantasy, uh, Chronicles of William Wilde. They're shorter books, but they're actually equal. The series is equal in length to Cast in the Outcast. There's five books in it. The first book I wrote for my teenage sons because um, I wanted to get them to read something because they don't read. They do a lot. They do a lot of reading now, but it's not. It's not epic fantasy. My oldest son reads movie screenplays, and my youngest reads philosophy texts, which is. He's 16 years old and he's reading philosophy things. But whatever. Anyway, Marcus Aurelius is a good one. What's that? I said, give Marcus Aurelius. He'll be busy for hours. He already read it. But <laughs> he's already read that. Um, but I wrote the first book for my for my teenage sons. And um, the inner epicurus and we just couldn't hold back. And eventually, I turned William Wyatt and the Straight ahead, young adult, urban fantasy, and, fantasy. and while I was writing, in the first chapter, uh, William is in high school, which is based on my own high school, except it was co-edited when he was in the guy's Jesuit high school. He sees this girl, and a character from the Outcast decided, that's me. But she insisted, that's me, don't kick me out. So suddenly, you have to merge you know, the workings of the cats and the outcasts into the world. And then they decided to see another world. And you know, so now we've got this convoluted set of books. I've written 10, and um, they're all linked together now. And it's called the, uh, the Anchor World. So I get to link three timelines, three different magic systems, and all these characters and not contradictions. That's an impressive thing. So while all of those series that are now linked together sound fascinating, today we want to talk about A Testament of Steel, an Anchored World's novel, uh, which is the first book of your Instrument of Omen series. So where did you get the premise for this universe? How did you come up with the idea? Was it psychedelics, a Ouija board, too much laughing gas at your day job? Let me see, Instrument of Omens, the series title came from Thunderbolts. So <laughs> I wanted something that sounded really cool as, as a title, something that you know, would hook the reader. And, you know, um, Lionel wields the Sword of Omens. And so I thought, that's kind of a cool name, Sword of Omens. What could I, what could I do with it? So that's where the series title comes from is Thundercats. But as far as the series itself is concerned, um, that actually, a big chunk, not a big chunk, but part of it actually comes from the ending of William Wilde because some of the characters in Instrument of Omens start showing up in book three of William Wilde. And then as the series progresses towards books four and five, they take on bigger roles. And um, and so this is really the a different aspect of some of what happens in William Wilde and also continuing on with their story. So it was um, it was just a, a natural jumping off point from, from William Wilde, I guess you could say. Okay. So before we dive into the story itself, let's talk. take a second and talk about that glorious cover. So can you tell us a little bit about this, this glorious piece of art and how you came up with it? Um, I gave my, my artist a brief, and that's what he came up with. So... I just so I've I've worked with this artist with the three casts and the outcast covers. I, I had somebody else do the William Wilde covers, um, but then for uh, Testament of Steel, I went back to Andreas. He's from uh, a Greek island. I think it's called Naxos, 
And I just sent him a brief and I said, this is what he looks like. This is what he's doing. You've drawn him before um, for the cast in the, in the outcast. And that's what he came up with. And, and the moment he sent the initial uh, rendering, I just, I mean, that's just really cool. I love that. So anyway, um, that's how, how he came up with it. So the sword is pretty much the same sword as from book one of Cast and the Outcasts. And the character is uh, pretty much the same character. He looks the same, tough, cool, and pretty badass. And I love him. So I also like the way you did the um, the 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 text on the thing. It, it sort of pops that way with that that silver. silver. But uh, the the symbol between your first and your last name. What is that? Is that your just your brand logo, or is it significant? It's it's my brand logo. Um, it's got um, it's got seven branches, and the cast and the outcast. The main character's father talks about how he thinks humanity is a tree with seven branches because there are seven casts. And each feeds the trunk of humanity. And um, I go through that single family, and so that just is, I've just decided that's what it's going to be. Works for me. It's a nice logo. It looked almost like the tree of life, but I'm looking at a smaller version. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's a you know that kind of symbol. You'll actually see it a lot in a lot of places, just in metalworking and woodworking. That one is just unique to, to my world because of the seven branches and and the way it works. I I, I think it's cool. All right, the next one is you, Doc. So, what would your thirty-second elevator pitch for this novel be? The Testament. Yes, sir. Oh my! Thirty-second elevator pitch. Um, let me think of this. Uh, this is hard. Um, a love letter to Wheel of Time and Lord of the Rings, inspired by India, India's culture, with a character who knows that. Oh God, that's so hard. Let me circle back to that because I know I've got a better one than than what I just said. Because that's terrible, that's awful. I think uh, I think a person would fall asleep at like the ten second mark. Isn't a thirty second or a thirty second elevator pitch supposed to be like you know exciting and stuff? That was not exciting. <laughs> Close enough. We'll, we'll accept it. It's good enough for government work. Good enough then. You did better than some of that we've had doing them. Uh, so what is it that makes your series special in, I mean, Tolkien's influenced so many, but yeah. I can I can tell you what makes it special, but you tell us. Um, so I, I think this, this boils to what I'm trying to write. I, I'm not interested in writing Grimdark. I know people love Grimdark, but I'm interested in writing about people who genuinely are striving to be heroes. And um, so those are the characters that, that started what I wanted to, to demonstrate is people that have flaws, but are still always striving to do good, not just accidentally doing good and mostly doing bad. Uh, and they're not perfect. They're growing constantly. But they're growing in a good way. And so that was the genesis of, of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to write about these people that, you know, you would love to have them over for dinner or go to have a beer with them because they're, they're fun and they're good people. But, you know, if crap hits the fan at the bar, they'd also be the ones that would kick some ass and, and have no trouble doing it. So, you know, it's that interesting meld between, you know, being kind, but also being unwilling to take somebody else's crap. So that, that's the genesis of it. But uh, in terms of what I think makes it special is it's not Western Europe, which, like I said, is, is not as common uh, as it used to be. There are a lot more different cultures being pulled in. Um, uh, but it's, it is unique in, in how it, it does portray some of the Indian aspects, and, and I'm not afraid to still pull in Western aspects. 
But um, that's what I would say makes it, makes it unique. Is, and, and it's also kind of the writing. Some people get on my writing as being too um, ornate. That was intentional. It's not because I can't write in a more simple, direct fashion. But I, I wrote the series in that fashion because the characters are also intelligent. I didn't want them to come off as dullards. This is how they perceive the world. They perceive the world with words that make sense. That's a good answer. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge... Doc, you muted yourself. Sorry. It's, it's, it is a very descriptive world, and it normally leaves me craving Indian food. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, what tropes do you think A Testament of Steel hits on best within the science fiction fantasy tropes? It's a coming-of-age story, uh, obviously, because my main character um, wakes up at the bottom of a well and has no memory of himself. Um, I mean, it actually starts a little sooner than that, but in, in essence, that's who Cinder Shade is. is a young boy who wakes up in the bottom of the well, has no memory of his life, uh, is crippled and uh, is from a small village where his brother can't afford to, to feed him. And so he's sent to live at an orphanage. So it's a found family story. Uh, and of course, he then goes to a military academy. So um, you have the, the coming of age, the, the destined hero, the found family, and the military academy tropes. And, and of course, Cinder you can see what he becomes on the cover. He's not, he's not um, club-footed or, or, or weak. He looks pretty powerful and strong. And, um, and so he's a person of destiny. But if you've read my other books, you understand that Cinder earns his destiny. It wasn't given to him. He has to outwork uh, everyone to become who he is because he's really trying to recover who he was. That's a very unique way to start a story. Everyone seems to want to start fantasy stories in a bar, and I'm all for a good bar, don't get me wrong, but you don't last in the infantry if you're not. But I like when people get creative and start other places as a way to start a story. I've never heard of anyone starting in a well before. That definitely is uh, Shades of Lassie, and I approve. No, that was Shades of Me. I fell into a well when I was two years old and almost drowned. Oh. My grand thought this was in India. I was either two or one out in India. Because um, all I know is my mom said she looked over at me and she saw me leaving further and further and down I went. And so my grandfather had to go find me out of the way. Uh, so um, that's absolutely That's even cooler than Lassie. Kind of is, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, just picturing, I'm just picturing how freaked out your mother was. Um, so, because... Children, I think, are meant to scare the, the daylights out of their parents. Um, right. So what sub, what subgenres do you think that this particularly fits well into? Uh, so I think it fits into general fantasy. Uh, and then if you break that down, uh, definitely epic fantasy, military fantasy, um, coming of age, uh, sword and sorcery. And eventually dragons. So we all know I'm biased and I love dragons. So that makes me happy. But, you know, okay. Now on to the story itself. Tell, why don't you tell us a little bit about the main character, Cinder Shade. I know you touched, glossed on him a little bit, but... Tell so the story... Um, you know, I really wanted to write a tightly focused story about Cinder. I think, you know, you can do it, go epic fantasy a lot of different ways. Like, Wheel of Time obviously has a massive cast of characters. Game of Thrones has a massive cast of characters. I wanted a tightly focused um, fantasy where most of the point of view is just locked into Cinder. Um, and so Cinder starts out as a young man. Like I said, he has no memory of, of himself. He's got complete amnesia. He goes to a, an orphanage in, a, in, a, in the capital city. 
Uh, but Cinder is always driven to do not necessarily what's right, because that makes him sound too Gary Stu, but just to help in ways that he can for those who, who can't. That's just something that is inborn in him. And some would call that being a hero. That's just Cinder. And, um, and, and he learns a little bit more about what makes himself tick. And so uh, he comes to realize that the thing that he really wants to do is protect people. And the best way that he knows to protect people is as, as a warrior. And, you know, it's not just being a warrior. It's, you know, to protect a person, you can protect them as, as, a, as a physician, as a, as a healer, uh, even as a lawyer. But um, Cinder's way of protecting people is as a warrior. And so he, you know, he joins a military academy in a, in a school, and then from there it goes on to... Uh, the Elven Military Academy, which is the highest one in the, in the entire world, where he meets a woman, an Elven princess, who, um, you know, he recognizes her, and she recognizes him, and they shouldn't recognize each other, but, you know, of course they're going to recognize each other because they know each other, they just don't remember it. She doesn't remember her past either, and so that's where the story springs off from. Do you go all, Luke, I'm your sister? They're not brother and sister. <laughs> okay, good. It would be terrible if they were okay. brother and sister. All right, yeah, perfect. They, they, they don't remember their past life uh, their, or their life past the death, uh, the death in, in this world that they're living in. Um, and, you know, the, the elves are arrogant. They're supposed to be arrogant. She's supposed to not have anything to do with them. And she generally doesn't have a lot to do with him except to train him. Um, but, you know, it's not all maudlin and they don't just fall into each other's arms. they got to earn everything that they got. They don't, they're not given anything. They have to earn their skills and, you know, whatever happens to them as friends, they have to be willing to sacrifice things to be friends. That's a good answer. So you talked about the main character. Were there any secondary characters that you were you find especially memorable that you enjoyed um, interacting with in your story world? Well, the, the princess is named Anya, and you know, she of course uh, has a different name in some of the different series. But I love Anya. Um, the first military school that Cinder goes to, you know, they're, they're trained in the sword, but the four main characters in the they were based. Of MMA fighters in the UFC. And so <laughs> there's one named Barack St. Peace, and he's, he's, he's based off George St. Pierre. And you know, George is from um, Quebec, Canada, so when he speaks English, he speaks it with a little bit of an accent like this, and it's like each. And so Barack <laughs> has a bit of an accent. I never describe him as speaking like George, but he just has a bit of an accent. And um, and the way they fight is, is similar to, to George. George uh, has been undefeated for, for years, but he hasn't finished anyone except Michael Bisping. Um, but generally, he just takes the distance. And um, some people say it's because George is unwilling to really engage and risk himself, whatever. Uh, when you step into the octagon, you're willing to risk and engage. But you know, those were the, the inspiration for those characters is, what if MMA fighters really were in an epic fantasy novel? And these were the MMA fighters. So it was uh, Johnny Bones, Jones, Daniel Cormier, Arthur Bisbee, and George St. Pierre. Those were the inspirations. So um, their names are not the same at all. And their behavior is not the same at all. Except Daniel looks like the character. I, I, I just had a lot of fun with it. Hopefully those guys are because it's So uh, you've mentioned the secondary characters. What about bad guys? Were there any bad guys your characters had to uh, encounter without giving any spoilers? There's spiders. Okay. Have you all ever watched Babylon 5? I have. So you know how, you know, crap is constantly happening, but all it's 
tits and stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're about to be destroyed. Why are we arguing about politics? But they still are. Um, I wanted to incorporate that in, in the bigger wars that are coming up when we put three on here. And so it's not just the good guys that have political wars, it's also the bad guys that are going to have political wars. That makes no sense at all. But I think it'll be interesting. And so those characters are going to be fun to write. I haven't gotten to them yet. But um, the elves, all of them have been fun to write just because they're such there's they're such general dicks and it's just a lot of fun writing those guys because they're unrepentant about it and uh, and I enjoy that. Who wouldn't? So um, you've put your character through a lot of stuff. Uh, not all of it was very pleasant. So if they ever appeared in our world and they met you and they knew you were the author who tormented them so uh, in a back alley, how do you think that would fare for you? Well, you know, they can cook in 20 different ways to Sunday without even touching me because, you know, they got mad at me and stuff. But they also know that I'm weak. And so they wouldn't really hurt me, but they might give me a stern, you know, stern talking to them. They might give me harsh language. But hopefully that would be mixed up to That beats homicidal rage any day. It's harsh language. Yes. All right. So um, sometimes, you know, as authors, when you're when you're writing, there are scenes that just don't quite make the cut. The story goes a different direction. So were there any scenes that were particularly memorable for you when you were writing this that didn't survive the uh, the editing process that you keep thinking, man, I'd like to find a way to use this? Yeah. And in really there were a couple of scenes with these uh, with two of my older characters who decided to get married. So that they were on the cutting room floor. And in, um, in Memories of Prophecies, there was a scene where uh, the elven prince, you know, shoves people out of the way to get to a rope swing, not realizing that he's about to go dashing off the cliff, let go of the rope and fall into an ice-cold pond. He just thinks it's a pond, doesn't realize it's ice-cold. And so um, that hit the cutting room floor just because it didn't make sense. There was no place to put it, but... I get a chuckle out of it whenever I think about it. Just thinking him of him flying through the air like Tarzan and then hitting the water. But that didn't make the cutting that didn't make the, the final cut. And I think there was maybe one other scene like that also. That's what newsletters are for. You can give them as the bonus bloopers. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's a bonus blooper. Will White does that with his uh, cradle series. He's got these bloopers at the end of his books all the time. They're hysterical. So finally, in, in most worlds that, that we love to, to engage in, the universe itself is almost as much of a character as the protagonist and the antagonist. So what can you tell us about the world where these stories occur? Well, the cast and the off-cast is a broken world. It uh, takes place in two continents. And um, it has it suffered an apocalypse 2,000 years ago, two apocalypse, where well over 90% of the world civilization was destroyed in a single and they're still undergoing that apocalypse because whatever destroyed the world two millennia ago is still trying to destroy the world. Um, but the thing about the world that remains is that while everyone is segregated into these tight castes, they somehow make the civilization not unbearable. The, the world itself, the cities themselves, are beautiful places. They're generally at peace. Uh, there's not a lot of um, crime. Uh, women are honored. They're not honored because, oh gosh, let's honor women. It's because that's just the expectation of the culture, that uh, women are equal. It's, it's the default setting, so to speak, not that they had to fight for anything. That's just the way it is. And so it's, in, in some ways, it's, it's better than what we have. Um, even though they have those tight casts. And so um, I wanted to sort of, you know, marry the notion of the ugliness of the caste system with the civilization that we would all applaud in a lot of ways. Um, William Wallace takes place on our, our, our planet, but um, the, the most of the story eventually takes place on an island out in the middle of the South Pacific, but if I could go anywhere in anything that I've ever read or written, 
that would be where I'd want to work if that island in the South Pacific. And then um, Seminole, third world um, that I created, it's a single uh, continent, you know, the, you know, a landmass the size of Earth, but in a single continent. And um, there are lots of massive empires, mostly run by the Alps and some by humans and some by dwarves. Uh, and, but they're conflicted because the Alps were not created to be imperial rulers. They were supposed to preserve nature just like classic elves are supposed to do. Dwarves are not supposed to be warlike uh, people. They're supposed to have provided solace and empathy for those who are hurting. And so they're very much going against their natural natures in what they've done, what they've had to do it in order to survive. And, uh, and so the, 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 the worlds do have their own sort of... Um, and of course, they, they exist for thousands of years, so there's lots of history and lore to these places. And um, and so, yeah, the, the, the world's had their own characters. It has its own characterization. At least I hope they do. Okay. So A Testament of Steel is clearly part of a series. We know because it says so on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, so there are currently two books out in this series, but is their story done? Will there be more from these characters? Where do you see this series going next? So there's probably going to be about seven books. That's what I've always planned for. That's what I always told myself in my head. Whether I manage seven or six, I don't know, maybe eight. I don't know, but seven is the magic number that it's really good. Um, and uh, I'm in the middle of book three right now. And probably by middle of May, I'll be 50% of the way done with book three. Um, with pretty heavy editing for the 50% that I've done, so it's coming along. Um, whether it's good or not, that's always a challenge, isn't it? I mean, when you write something, oh, geez, a little tale. When you're writing something, it's um, in the moment, you're never sure how good it is, and I don't know how good it is, but I, so far it's turned out okay, so... <laughs> so or can you tell me to turn out okay? How long are your books, generally speaking? The Cast and the Outcast, I mean, in terms of words, is that word count? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, just as a general rule. So the Cast and the Outcast range between, I think, 160 to 175,000 words. William Wilde started out of around 80 to 90,000 words for the first book, and then a little north of 100. For book three, 120 for book four, and then like 135 for book five. And then Instrument of Omens is significantly larger. Book one was 186,000, book two is over. It's just a little bit more than 200,000. So you're talking traditional uh, epic fantasy lengths then? Yeah. All right. Well, Doc, the next one is you. If you can get distracted, stop being distracted from the kitty. We're still muted. There you go. There. Sorry. Okay. Um, so every universe has its own consistent rules and science. And this is really more of a science one. Uh, sorry, a magic world. So what magic can we expect from Testament of Steel and... And so spill the beans about it. I'm really. If I spill the beans, I'll give away all the secrets. Oh, okay. I'll spill some of the beans. So, in, uh, in Cast the Outcast, people know of something called Javatma, which is actually a Hindu concept. And uh, William Wilde, they use something different called Loretta. And in Instrument of Omens, I have to merge the two and explain. Are they the same or are they different? And the characters themselves don't know because, you know, we see, we receive wisdom all the time. You know, we're told this is why things work and we're completely wrong. And, you know, they have this understanding that these two things are synonyms, whether they're right or wrong, is explained in, in Memories of Prophecies and is explained further in, in the rest of the series. Um, but I, I love the notion that we have thousands of years of knowledge 
that is handed down, we're certain it's correct, and it's totally wrong. Um, and so, you know, this happens all the time in science. It's not just, you know, magic that can, be, it can go wrong. Science has been wrong so much. Uh, for a thousand years in Western Europe, we used to believe people and look for the four beings. And that was a real form of medicine. It sounds asinine now, but that's what people did for a thousand years. And even more recently, um, stomach ulcers, gastric ulcers, were considered due to stress. And people were told, just stop being so stressed and your stomach ulcer will go away. And it took a senior house officer from Australia and, and, his, um, and his consultant to prove that most gastric ulcers actually are the result of a bacterial infection. And that only happened in the 1990s. For 50 years, stomach ulcers were treated with bed rest and uh, antacids and <laughs> trying to de-stress yourself. But really, it needed an antibiotic. So we were born for 50 years. But that was the received wisdom that was taught in medical schools throughout the world about stomach ulcers. So I love playing with that notion that they don't know what's real, that prophecies can be false. And, uh, and so um, the magic that you're asking me to explain, some of it comes from the soul, some of it comes from the body, and the two are different. And some of, the, some of it can be tied together. But, um, you know, it's, it's a large concept that I sort of have to tease out instead of doing it for them. So... Is there a specific magic spell or item that you would use? Like you, of all the ones you created, you go, that's the one I want, and I would use it every day to do X. Healing. Well, they can heal with the touch, just about anything. I would love to be able to do that. That would be. I know that sounds weird, but it, it's just, no. I think it sounds. I totally get it. Yeah, that's the one I would take. That's the one I would take. I mean, yes, you can make yourself stronger, faster, and, you know, become a multi-multi-millionaire in UFC or NFL or whatever. Uh, that would be really, really cool. Uh, you could you know, jump 50 feet, maybe even fly. I haven't decided on that yet, but I'd take the healing. See, I would always find things and have fun using them inappropriately. Yeah. But this is why I keep you in business because I'd probably cut my toes off with a lightsaber. So, yeah, yeah you could definitely use any kind of magic and appropriate. Like, 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 <laughs> so, um, tell us a little bit about you've talked a bit about the um dwarves and the elves. I'm really kind of curious about the trolls. Trolls. Okay, you did so, one troll, and it was so cool. Yes, yeah, so there's, there's a troll in William Wild, and so he's actually a pretty good player, so I think you mentioned you're on one. He's not a good one, but he is not two. So uh, the trolls as a race, um, you'll see, read more about them in book two, but um, they're wise, they're powerful, and they're gentle, but they can be angered, and you want to be careful about angering a troll. Do they associate themselves with bridges? Or the internet? They do not associate with the internet. Uh, they do not like bridges because they're too short in general. You know, trolls are generally over eight feet tall, and most bridges over those small little streams, they keep hitting their heads on them. And they got ram's horns curling off, and they get them caught in the, in the trellises and stuff. So now they don't like bridges either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so how many, we're, we're kind of winding down a bit, but how many books do you think will be in this branch of uh, the Anchored World series? Instrument of Audience? I think about seven. Awesome. But um, the entire anchor world, world, there's so many books that can be 
There's at least two, three, four series I think still writing. I never expected this. It was one back there from William Wyatt and Cassie. One day, that's me, figure it out. And she was very insistent about it. That suddenly I had this, you know, sprawling multiverse that I didn't expect, but it's been a lot of fun time everything together. But instruments will have seven books, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, having read the outcasts and the cast and the outcasts, that is very much that character's attitude, too. I'm it's here. You know your problem. Is. Figure yeah. it out. Yes, figure it out. Yeah. So, so you've got a, a decent number of the classical um, creatures from fantasy, the dwarfs, the elves, the trolls. Are there any creatures that you brought into this world that you created on your own? Uh, yes, the first. I really should have given a different name so I can make their names fail more easily. In a case of Necrost, is like a past tense word. And they're in a post six, because they're in a multiple. There's the plural, but uh, they're actually basically shambling. They're not zombies, because they're not interested in the reality. But they feed on anything dead. They, um, they'll take new eyes if their eyes are going bad. If your arm happens to fit, they'll graft your arm onto their shoulder. And so in some ways they're you know, they're constantly in decay and they're constantly looking to feed on other magic users and steal their magic to help them heal enough to go steal some body parts. That's dark. It's sort of like the reavers almost. Yeah, and in some ways they're a darker version of the reavers. Yeah. And that was already pretty dark. So when you created this this new creature, like how did you go about doing that? Did you let nature inspire you or did you just sort of create it out of whole cloth when you were envisioning like what they look like, how they move? Um, I wanted that to be the so that it's better than the magic that everybody else has that washes off of them. They're that tough that they don't feel they can absorb it so they're like terminators so in some ways they're kind of like zombie terminators they just once they flock onto to get out of their get out of their path so it was kind of like mix a zombie with the terminator and uh and somebody that's constantly uh sort of falling apart and they have to steal other body parts to reinvigorate themselves Okay, so this interview is winding down. So before we let you go, was there anything about a testament of steel uh, that we didn't ask you that you want to tell us before we move on? I think you all covered it really well. I mean, I hope that people are interested what I have to say. Maybe they'll be given away about You have seat players and thunderbolts and dummy stuffing I've heard of work things inspiring people. So uh, before we let you go, can you tell um, the listeners and viewers how they can find you on the Wild Wild Interwebs? Sure. I've got a website, uh, that, 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 All of those will be in the show notes. Um, so you can find us, dear listener, on our website at www. Why did I put the W? Anchor.fm backslash Blasters Tech and Tech Blades. Anchor.fm backslash Blasters Tech and Tech Blades. We're on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at Blasters and Blades Podcast at gmail.com. We promise we check it at least once a year. We have a Facebook group, Facebook.com backslash Blasters and Blades Podcast. You can support the show on the Anchor FM site or on buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley and be sure to put for the podcast in the comment section and uh that's how we are on the interweb so doc are you ready to bring this home 
I can. I can definitely bring it home after I remind people that they can also subscribe through Anchor FM. So, JR forgot something. Thank you for spending your precious time with us. For the absentee, Nick Garber, and the adult brain, JR Handley, I'm Seska, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, things that go boom, and of course, great literature. Have a great way. Bye.